Thank you, thank you. Um, welcome to Rock Fellowship. We're glad you could join us this Sabbath for worship and for community. You may or may not have noticed, uh, Pastor Chris, as well as two of our children's ministry representatives, Helen and Irene, are not here this weekend. They're actually in Arizona this weekend, helping out our brothers and sisters over there um, with their ministries and just sharing our gospel and our resources with them um, across straight lines. Um, speaking of children's ministry, um, our two leaders, Helen and Irene, as I was coming up with this sermon for this week, um, every once in a while, um, I, I'll just have a, a, an occasional song just playing around in my head. And actually, the more, the older I get, I feel like the more I realize how impactful, actually, um, me growing up in the church and having a robust children's ministry was for me. As I was thinking back, as all the songs that I remember, all the individual sermons and like the occasional things my Sabbath school teachers would do for me, I realized the older I am, just how big of an amazing impact that had in my life growing up. And um, so shout out to all of our volunteers and anyone that helps on children's ministry. I know sometimes it can seem like, do they understand what I'm doing? But I, for me, at least for myself, I can tell you, it really has been a huge impact in my life. So much so that I've decided to use something that has, that has been bugging me for a really long time um, for this message. There's a song that I think almost every kid that grew up in church learned at some point, probably in, in Sabbath school. It's very familiar. Um, and I got into, not an argument, a discussion, a topic with a youth member maybe about a year ago on the correct lyrics of this song. So I'm going to say, I'm going to hum the tune of this song. And then I'm going to ask for audience participation. I was here last week when Jonathan Russell was preaching, and I have never seen our church so responsive in a sermon in my life. So I'm going to hold on to that and ride that momentum. And I'm going to ask you what the fifth word in this song is. Because it's I feel like there is a correct answer to this, but I keep being told otherwise, all right? The song goes, my God is so, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do, okay? The point of contention here is what is that fifth word? And it's come down to basically, there are two, actually in Sabbath school today in the youth, I heard there's a third alternative. If you grew up singing this song and the word you sang was, my God is so Great. Can I see a show of hands? If you believe the correct answer, okay, that's a lot of you, put your hands down. If you feel like the song should be, my God is so big, that's the version you grew up with. If you could raise your hand. Thank you, thank you. See, not just because everyone, okay. Also, I looked it up and VeggieTales sings, my God is so big. So, I don't know, for whatever that's worth, I just feel like I should throw that out there. Um, apparently, everyone at Rock, and I don't know if it's because I don't know, if you grew up at Rock, you have the same Sabbath school teacher, but actually looking around, a lot of people that didn't grow up at Rock also think it's my God is so great. Um, but anyways, I digress. I just really had to get that out there while I had everyone's attention. So apparently I'm wrong. But anyways, I'm still singing my God is so big. The compromise I can give, I, I, I do think there's a verse two. And then maybe verse two is my God is so great. But verse one is definitely my God is so big. Anyways... <laughs> As iconic as that song may be, and I'm a little, a little hung up on that because every kid that walked into Sabbath school made it seem like I was a bad guy for thinking that. Um, it's kind of an iconic song, and I'm glad almost everyone raised their hand for one or the other. And I feel like for most of us, if you grew up in church, it's like, it's iconic, right? My God is so big or great, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And then there's that whole verse of like, the mountains are his, the rivers are his, God created everything, God is so powerful, he can do anything. 
And for all for us growing up and as children, it's like the perfect song. It conveys the omnipotence of God, how God is so powerful, the creative abilities of God, the mountains, the rivers, the tallest thing you can think of, right? That huge mountain, like God made that. The rivers, the stars in the sky are the work of God himself. And it's like such a beautiful, but also kind of like a simple, easy way for children to understand like the vastness of God's power. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There is nothing my God cannot do. And it's kind of like a cheer and anthem that we can sing together. But it's also kind of um, a little too happy-go-lucky in some sense. Like when you sing the song, like it invokes like skipping and dancing. But as you grow up, for most of us, I feel like there is almost like, um, yeah, you grow out of that song. And the reason I say that is there's, you know, if you're being honest, for most of us, it's, it's not that simple, right? Yes, there's nothing my God cannot do. God can do anything, but it uh, doesn't mean God will do anything, right? And most of us have grown up where maybe there was a point in your life where you prayed a prayer, right? Because you're like, there's nothing my God cannot do. God, can I have a million Legos? And then uh, God did not give you a million Legos. And as you grow up, like there were nuances that were added to that line in this song. Yes, there is nothing my God cannot do. Technically, God can do anything, but the older we get, and as we mature in our understanding of God, it's like, yes, asterisk. It's not like he can't do anything, but it's like there's a lot of things he probably won't do depending on the circumstances, and he may not do it when you want to do it. And there's kind of like this sort of nuance. I almost want to say like, um, yeah, I guess the nuance that we, that we learn as we grow up in our understanding of God. And there's this almost childlike version of this song where it's like, yeah, God can do anything. And then there's like the adult version where it's like, we know Yes, technically God can do anything, but will God, will God do anything? Should God do everything? Probably, maybe, yes, or not. And if you're, for a lot of us, maybe for some of us, um, we learned that nuance the hard way. Or maybe you had a moment in your life where you needed God to come through, and this was what you held on to. There's nothing my God cannot do. God, I need you to come through for me in this situation. And he didn't, and maybe for, for some of us, your story and your walk with Jesus has been largely shaped by that moment when um, God did not meet the expectations you set for him and it kind of shattered your view or maybe you left disillusioned or very hurt or disappointed um, by what God did not do for you. And if that's you in this place or maybe you're struggling with that now where there's a tension in your life where, man, I need God to come through, but like, ah, I don't know. Yes, the song says that no, there's nothing my God cannot do. But life experience has taught me, well, doesn't, God doesn't do anything you ask and he shouldn't, couldn't. I don't know. If you're in that space right now, I'm glad you joined us for church this week. And I hope that these words um, from scripture can provide some solace and some hope and some maybe clarity um, for God's direction in your life. But before going to the word, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this time in the Sabbath, where as we sang earlier, it's a time of rest and remembrance. And as we just drop our shoulders and drop our hands of all the productivity and all the things and all the busyness going on in this week, Father, I ask that you take this time, Lord, and Invite the Holy Spirit into this place, Lord. Holy Spirit, come, Lord Jesus. Come into our hearts, our minds. Soften our hearts, open our ears. Lord, may we be receptive to your word. And Lord, may your will be done in rock today as it is done in heaven. I praise this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I've shared a few bits of my upbringing with you through several different sermons throughout my time here at Rock, uh, but some of you may remember that I grew up going to an Adventist academy up through the sixth grade, and in the sixth grade, I transferred to like a bigger Adventist academy, and it was my last year 
there. And it was probably around the size of like a PAA type academy. And previously I'd gone to a really, really small one. And at this academy in the sixth grade, I had a Bible teacher by the name of Mr. Leon. And I will never forget this man. This man was the greatest Bible teacher I've ever had in my life. And he was, you know, as academies go, he was also like the calculus, AP calculus teacher. And he also taught physics. But he was specifically also, he only taught sixth grade Bible. He wasn't like the Bible teacher. They're, I, I'm assuming they're like budget cuts or something. And they shifted him around. So he went from teaching like high-level math and science earlier in the day to like teaching sixth graders about Jesus. And he was, for what it's worth, he was, I really do think, the best Bible teacher I've ever had. Also the last Bible teacher I ever had. And part of the reason I loved this guy was because for me, that year in his Bible class represented like a really big shift in my understanding of who God was. And he brought a lot of the stories that I was familiar with in the Bible to life. One thing he did, and he was not afraid to kind of go outside of the box with his teaching methods. And I remember one time he was describing the story of um, some people that needed to be healed. And he was talking about, you know, these people, when they saw Jesus, like they were so desperate, right? Because they knew if they could just touch his cloak or just get his hand placed on them, they could be healed. And to demonstrate this, so he was teaching in the front and there were maybe three rows of desks where we were sitting at. He like climbed over the desks and like acted out someone like trying to reach for Jesus and like shocked all of us. We're like, I didn't know he could do that. But also in that moment, like something really clicked for me as like, as he was acting this out, it hit me that these people, these characters in the Bible were real. Like they had emotions and feelings and they had backstories. And he always did such an amazing job of painting. Like imagine you were this woman like who had this problem for years and years. Like how desperate would you be? And you knew that your one chance of hope was if you just could get in Jesus's presence, you could be healed. And the way he brought these characters to life was always amazing for me. And one day as he was talking about, you know, the healing of Jesus, he told us, he asked us this question. He's like, you know, you read the Bible and you hear all these stories of Jesus and his apostles and the prophets doing miraculous deeds and, and primarily healing people when they were sick. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was like, did you know, like, why do you think that doesn't happen today? And I was like, well, we didn't say anything, but, you know, in our minds, we're like, I don't know, just, just kind of faded. It's not a thing anymore. And he was like, you can do that today. And I was like, no. He's like, yes. You can't. And he like walked us through this, like, you know, like you can place your hand on someone, you pray for them. And I think he shared a story of how he went on a mission trip and he experienced healing like over prayer. And it was like blowing all of our minds. And I think for every single kid in that class, that might have been the first person to ever tell that to us. We're like, what? Like, that's not just a story or a concept. Like he said, yeah, there's no reason biblically like why you could not do that and pray over sick people today. And he like told us like, if you want to try, like, here's kind of how you do it. You place your hand in the name of Jesus and, you know, kind of gave us a script. Didn't tell us to do it, but he definitely planted a seed, I think, for every single person in that room. So the next time my mom had a headache and she was laying in bed, I was like, oh, my goodness, mom, this is perfect. No, 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 don't take that Advil. I have something better. And I, wa I remember, I remember walking up to her and she was laying in bed. And she was like, had a long day. She had this headache and, you know, she wasn't feeling well. And I said, I got you, mom. Let me show you what I learned in school. And I walked up to her, and as I was walking up, she was laying in bed, as I walked up to her bed, kind of by her side, I got real nervous. Because I was like, okay, well, theoretically, right, there might, maybe she could, should work. And then as I, I told her what I was gonna do, and she's like, oh, 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 okay, yeah, go for it, you can pray for me. And I remember I placed my hand on her forehead, because I was like, her head hurts. Put it on her forehead, and I, I prayed, you know, God, 
thank you for my mom. She's awesome. Please, in the name of Jesus. He told me you had to say it like confidently. So like in the name of Jesus, like I rebuked this headache. I think that's what I said, more or less. And then, and then I took my hand off. I was like, how do you feel? And she was like, oh, maybe a little better. Let's try again. And so I was like, in the name of Jesus, I rebuked this headache. I rebuked it. And I said like, maybe on the third time, I was like, okay, this is not working. And then my palms started sweating and like on my mom's forehead. And eventually she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think I'm better now. Right? And then I walked away feeling, you know, very, um, I mean, embarrassed, honestly. Right? I was like, what? And a part of me was like, there was this, like this, there's this junction where like maybe my naiveness and my innocence kind of collided with like, this is what life was. And it was a very kind of eye-opening and definitely um, impactful moment in my spiritual life as I kind of walked away from that experience being like, well, what happened there? Right? But the minute it ended, because I was so embarrassed, and you know, I think I walked to like, okay, I'll get an Advil, right? Like, I, I immediately started rationalizing what had happened. And as I walked away kind of embarrassed and kind of sunk, and I was like, well, honestly, Jonathan, like, what did you expect to happen in that moment? What did you expect? Yes, it was awkward, and like, did you really think something was going to happen? Like, God was going to use you to heal your mom? Like, there's Advil in the cabinet. Like, what, what are you doing? And I remember, I, like, I think to save face or to, at least in a sense, to, like, keep my spirits up, I had to, like, rationalize this to myself, like, to make sense of, okay, I asked God for something objectively good, and then he, for all intents and purposes, I feel like did not meet my expectations. Like, why wouldn't God? It would have been such a cool, mo- like, cool moment. I, I, as I was doing, I remember, like, there was a, because there was a small part of me that thought it could work. And I remember thinking, like, it'd be so awesome. Like, imagine if I actually healed my mom, then I could maybe get rid of my eczema, and I could probably be better at sports. And, like, like my mind started racing with all the possibilities. And when it didn't work, I feel like I had to create some sort of, um, I don't know, safety blanket for myself to rationalize what, explain what happened there. Because, I mean, I didn't walk away being like, oh, guess God doesn't exist. God exists, God is powerful, okay, but this thing that I wanted didn't happen, and I had to logically try to piece some stuff together. And to be honest, for me, um, it impacted me a lot, particularly in my prayer life. I remember all the way through college, um, as a theology student, you know, taking classes about Jesus and Greek and Hebrew and, you know, all this stuff, I had a really hard time praying and asking God for specific things, and I remember talking to um, some of my friends about, yeah, like, you know, when it comes to prayer requests, I have a really hard time, like, asking God for stuff. Because a part of me is, I'm honestly, I'm very scared of being disappointed if he doesn't do what I ask him to do. So, you know, it's safer if I just stay vague and kind of like, ah, uh, you know, God, you can do it or you don't have to do it. Or if you do it however you want, I don't really care. Amen. Because for me, if God doesn't answer that prayer, it's like, I'm not disappointed. And if he does, I can be pleasantly surprised. And I feel like the older I got, the seed of almost skepticism started to grow inside of me. And for me, it was like, yeah, well, that's what happens when you become an adult. You become older, you mature, you're, you lose your naivete, and you, you become more real, right? Not so ridiculously optimistic and hopeful. And I feel like for a lot of us, there's a similar story for most of us, where there's a moment in your life where maybe your innocence met like reality, and you had to come up with some way to explain what had just happened. And maybe for a lot of us, because of that, the way we interact with God today as adults with decades of 
of, of knowing God and walking with God. For a lot of us, and I think for myself, I can say this, our relationship with God is very kind of safe. It's a little bit guarded. It's a little bit vague. For some of us, it's, it's a little bit indifferent. And as we experience disappointment, um, where we set a certain expectation and it's not met and it hurts, the next time we're in that same situation, um, we change our expectations to what we think the most reasonable outcome will be, which makes sense. Right? I had this expectation, it wasn't met, so the next time I do it, maybe I'll put, my, put the bar down here. And for most of us, maybe we've had that rude awakening moment yourself. Maybe recently, maybe there was a, a moment in your past where you had that, oh, okay, life isn't everything that I was taught growing up, that there are nuances, that there are realistic things that happen, and life isn't always a fairy tale that always goes your way. And I think for a lot of us, it's kind of seen as a rite of passage or as you know, a sign of maturity, right? Children, children, babies are optimistic and hopeful and anything is possible, but adults are grounded and realistic and safe and we know we have expectations, right? We've gone through life and we have wisdom and accumulated experiences that let us know that's that hope, that, that blind faith, that wild optimism, that's not real, that's not sustainable. Um, but today, I want to poke a little bit of holes and just poke around at that concept for a lot of us. Because I think I speak for maybe a lot of people that grew up in the church that this is a very easy place to find ourselves. We were, we were young and we grew up with this idea of God can and will and could do anything. And the older we get, uh, you know, the unanswered prayers we have, the things that we see in life, we become a little bit more jaded and a little bit more skeptical. And eventually, we potentially find ourselves in a situation where our relationship with God is... It's just safe. It's better to lower your expectations of what God could do because then you won't be so disappointed. But I want to start by looking at um, one of the most foundational characters um, in the story of the Bible um, in, in, in a man by the name of Abraham, which we find in the book of Genesis. And the reason he's such a foundational person, we're going to look at two of his stories, in part is because when Abraham is introduced to the biblical narrative, it represents a shift in the Bible where God goes from, you know, the Tower of Babel, Noah and the Ark, like, all of humanity to when Abraham enters, it, it represents a shift where God says, all right, I'm going to focus my attention and focus my efforts on this one family, this one person, and they will be my chosen people. And by blessing Abraham, by blessing his descendants, by blessing the Israelites, the plan, the strategy is that by blessing them, they will bless others and they can tell others about who I am and spread the word. So Abraham really is this like foundational person in the Bible, and in Genesis chapter 15, we have arguably, at least what I learned in college, one of the most important chapters in the Bible because Genesis 15 is when God makes his covenant with Abraham. God makes his promise with Abraham, and he reveals to Abraham what he wants to do with him. And it's actually a very like beautiful chapter in the Bible where God comes down and, and tells Abraham, hey, man, he casts this vision of this amazing future. He says, look at the stars in the sky. He says, as many stars as there are on the sky are how numerous your descendants will be. You'll be the father of many nations. And Abraham was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, let's slow down. I don't even have a child, right? He's like, and Abraham's like, oh, maybe through Eliezer. And God says, no, no, no. You, you will have your own child. Trust me on this. It's going to happen. And he casts this beautiful vision. And then they, to like finalize the covenant, they sacrifice a bunch of animals in a row. And God himself walks through the sacrificed animals as a sign that he would be the party that takes the consequences of an unfulfilled covenant. And it's like truly such a beautiful chapter in the Bible. Genesis chapter 15. Very iconic. Genesis chapter 16 begins with like the exact, like if you read the Bible 
like not in order, you read 15 and 16, you, you could not tell that these are back-to-back chapters because the minute you turn the page, the minute you swipe on your Bible app, the story you're meant with is the story of Ishmael and Hagar. And you see the story of Abraham and Sarah, even having just been told about the promise that God had for them, taking matters into their own hands. And um, basically what happens is Abraham and Sarah kind of revise what God told them and say, you know what? I get that God said all those things, but um, honestly, Abraham, we're pretty old. Let's just figure out a way to get a child between the two of us. So why don't you sleep with my servant, Hagar? And then at the very least, we can have a plan B, a safeguard for, honestly, I feel like the reasoning behind this could only be if God doesn't come through, right? If God's thing doesn't happen, let's, let's have some safeguards here. Let's be smart. Let's be wise and have a kid this way. Hagar's younger. Biologically, this should work. So let's have a child so that if, not saying it will, but if God's thing doesn't happen, we won't have nothing. And the birth of Ishmael happens. And this leads to, I mean, all sorts of disaster. But I want to share a quote with Ellen White up here on here. And Patriots and Prophets, as she describes kind of the mindset of what Sarah had and Sarah and Abraham during this process. So we can get that on screen. Um, Abraham had accepted without question the promise of a son. So it's not that Abraham did not, you know, totally disregarded God, no, 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 accepted the promise of a son. But he did not wait for God to fulfill his word in his own time and way. A delay was permitted to test his faith in the power of God. But he failed to endure that trial. And this next slide, I think, is more significant. Thinking it impossible that a child should be given her in her her old age, Sarah suggested And I think this is such an important statement. As a plan by which the divine purpose might be fulfilled, that one of her handmaidens should be taken by Abraham as a secondary wife. As a plan by which the divine purpose might be fulfilled. And here we have this interesting statement, this interesting kind of space where it's not that Abraham and Isaac didn't believe in God entirely. He accepted it and he believed in God and was faithful and obeyed. But there was, he could not shake the feeling. He and his wife could not shake the feeling that, okay, come on. We're really old. If we're being honest, there's probably a solid chance that, like, God doesn't come through here. That God doesn't do this. And so what they do is they essentially reformat, reframe God's words to make it fit their expectations of reality. Honestly, like, if you have a son with Hagar, like, that's still your son? I mean, maybe this is God's will. Right? And they reframe and they let their doubts creep in. And in doing so, they totally shape and reshape God's plan for them. And if you know the story, it's, it gets really dramatic. And there's a lot of pain and hurt and bitterness between Hagar, Ishmael, Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah. There's drama and people get hurt. And it's a really ugly mess that happens because I don't know if God's going to come through. So let me put up some safeguards. Let me put up a moat. Let me put up a plan B because honestly, I mean, God is God. Yes, God can do everything. Yes. But if he doesn't, it'd be nice to have a plan, something to show for all of this. They reinterpret what God said to fit their, to fit their expectations of what they thought was realistic. God didn't actually mean have a child with me. I mean, if he did, don't you think we would have had one by now? I mean, some time had passed. And I'm not sure what kind of mental gymnastics exactly they performed to get to this place, but it's a very interesting area where Abraham and Sarah didn't completely distrust or forget what God had said. They simply reframed it 
to fit their own expectations. And in doing so, they do a pretty big disservice to God in that they essentially underestimate what God could do. What they're really saying, I feel like what the actions of, that led to Ishmael really are saying is, I don't think God can give us a child. Because if they did, why would they go through all of this? Would not Sarah have wanted a child of her own? Of course. But I think her actions betray her true intentions, which is, I don't think God will. And it's not that I don't believe in God. It's just that, come on, God can't. Look how old we are. God can't actually do this. God can't actually fulfill what he said he was going to do. Then, keeping that in mind, kind of bookmarked, a few chapters later, Abraham, there's a story of Abraham being visited by three mysterious guests. And at this point, um, Ishmael has grown up, and a lot of that tension has kind of died down a little bit. And he's visited by three guests who we later find out are God and two angels. So divine beings visit Abraham. And one of the things they tell Abraham as they're visiting, he invites them in for dinner, for food, and as they're eating, um, they tell Abraham, Sarah's not here at the moment, it's just the four dudes. He tells them that this time next year, his wife Sarah, who's like 89, 90, this time next year, you will have a son, and Sarah will give birth to a child. And then comes the most embarrassing passage in all of scripture. Sarah overhears this and laughs, and laughs loud enough for God to hear. And God said, Sarah, why did you laugh? And she goes, I didn't laugh. And God says, yeah, you did. And the story ends right there. And all like, I read the story and get like secondhand embarrassment for Sarah. Like wrong place, wrong time. She laughs. And again, a little bit of that doubt. And again, it kind of reveals where she was about 13 years ago when the whole Ishmael incident happened. Come on. See, you're literally laughing in God's face, which betrays what you really felt, which was, God, you can't actually give me a child. I'm 90. That's not going to happen. But he tells him he, he would. And then the story continues where the two angels move on. And it's just God and Abraham one-on-one. -on -one. And they're having a conversation. And God decides. And you hear God kind of having like an inner monologue of like, should I tell him? Should I not tell him? Okay, I'll tell him. God tells Abraham, pulls him aside and says, hey, the real reason we're here. Like, yes, we wanted to tell you about Sarah. But the real reason we're here is because we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I've heard the cries of the wickedness and the craziness that's happening there. And we're actually on our way. I mean, the two angels that are sent ahead, they're on their way to destroy that city. And Abraham, knowing his nephew lives there, makes an attempt to dissuade God and try to save the city. And what follows is one of the most bizarre passages, I think, in all of Scripture. We'll have it on screen for you. It's about 10 verses, but it gets really repetitive, so it's fair. Um, then Abraham approached him, him being God, and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? So he starts kind of bargaining and arguing with God. And then, far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, threatening the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Right, so he's, he's, he's calling on to God's character. God, that's not like you. You wouldn't punish the wicked and the righteous the same, right? And the Lord said, okay, God gives in. If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for the 50's sake. Next slide. And Abraham spoke again. Now that I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? 
God says, if I find 45 there, he says, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke, okay, what if there are 40 found there? He says, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry. Let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he says, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. The Lord had finished speaking with Abraham. He left and Abraham returned home. Essentially, it has like a reverse auction with God. It just keeps going down and down and down. Starting with, you know, God's going to destroy it, no questions asked. Okay, what about for 50, 45, 40, 30? And he gets down to 10 and leaves every human reading this story for the rest of humanity wondering, what if he had gone lower? What if he had gone, right? I mean, you came this far? Dude, just bring it home. Why are you stopping at third base? To save this city, right? What if, what if Abraham had gone down to a lower number? What would, how would God have responded? And again, we'll never really know. And there are some scholars and commentaries that have their own takes on, on what could potentially have happened. Um, but for me, the question I want to ask, and the reason why I think this story may have some connection with the story we talked about earlier in, in Abraham's whole debacle with Ishmael and Isaac and not trusting in God the question that I really want to ask, and really the point of maybe this sermon centers around this question, not so much what would have happened had Abraham gone lower. It's really, why didn't Abraham go any lower? Why didn't Abraham continue? He was on a roll. God has been saying yes to everything he said. Why not shoot your shot with five? One. I mean, as the story goes, the angels go and they rescue Lot and his family and whoever is willing to come with him. So the implication is, well, at least Lot is righteous in Sodom, right? Righteous can be a fluid term, but at least God deems Lot because he saves him. And so the implication is, if he had asked God to spare the city for the sake of one, would the city have been spared? Maybe. And the question really I ask is, well, why didn't you ask God? Aren't you trying to save this city? Your nephew is there. Why did you start this conversation of all at all if you're just going to stop then? And there are a few interpretations. One is that maybe he thought there were 10, right? He's like, there's got to be 10 righteous people in that city. And maybe he left and he let God go thinking, all right, nice, we saved the city. And he was just surprised later. Or maybe he wanted to toe that line between, okay, justice, right? Justice must be done. God must punish wicked. But at the same time, you know, God have compassion. And for him, the line, the number where those two lines met was 10. 10 righteous people, then we can both be justice and righteous, justice and merciful at the same time, perhaps. Or maybe he just thought, I, I, maybe he, the facial expression that God was making during this, maybe he just felt like, okay, I've overstepped. Maybe, and again, the, the reality is, we'll never truly know why Abraham stopped at 10. In the same way that we'll never truly know what would have happened had he gone lower. But the part that gets to me is, why did God bother humoring Abraham at all to begin with? Like, why, why give in to 50? And then why give in to 45 and 40? And for me, I feel like that's the most interesting part. Because yes, I could be like, why didn't you go lower? And that's kind of the curious point, and it ends kind of with a cliffhanger. But it's interesting for me that God decided to entertain Abraham's request at all, 
Well, actually, all the way until Abraham stopped going. And for me, the most compelling reason I can think of as to why God even allowed himself to be bargained with and why he kept, I mean, essentially, why God kept raising the bar for Sodom's destruction was because he wanted Abraham to experience for himself the magnitude, the width, the depth of God's mercy and love for humanity. He wanted Abraham to personally experience like how far and how radical and how crazy God was willing to be for the sake of loving and forgiving and having mercy on humanity. Which is why a part of me wonders, would God have agreed to spare the city for one righteous person? But we'll never know because the limiting factor in this story was not God's mercy. It was not God's love or patience that ran out. It was Abraham's decision to stop asking. God never says no. God keeps saying yes, yes, 40, 30, 20, 10, sure. And it's not God's patience that's run out where he says, are you out of your mind? Stop asking me. It's Abraham that stops asking God. And the limiting factor here was Abraham. God goes as low as Abraham is willing to ask. And I can't help but wonder again, and this is where I tie into maybe his mindset with Isaac, is, is the reason Abraham did not go further than 10 similar to the reason Abraham and Sarah came up with a contingency plan for their son? God, part of me wonders if it was Abraham thinking God couldn't go past 10. God God was going to destroy the city regardless. God wouldn't forgive the city for less than 10 people. And I wonder if it was, and again, we'll never really know, and for For clarity's sake, this is not a commentary. This is just my thoughts. But I wonder if God wanted Abraham to go further and it was Abraham that stopped. And the reason I feel like there is some level of precedence for that because in the next book, in Exodus chapter 32, we have a kind of a similar situation where in Exodus 32, Moses is on Sinai and he's receiving the Ten Commandments. Again, an awesome, awesome story. Again, very similar to kind of Abraham and God. He receives the Ten Commandments. And as he's up there, they hear God gets wind of them building the golden calf at the bottom of the mountain. And God just, okay, enough is enough. I'm gonna just destroy them. I'm gonna pour my wrath on these people. When will I ever learn? And he tells, he tells Moses, you know what? Let's just start over. I'll just start over with you, right? We'll just start this whole thing over. I'm sick and tired. And then Moses reminds God of who he is and his promises. Remember your servant Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance. Moses, in that moment, and as God is expressing his frustration and anger, reminds God, we'll put fat air quotes around that, reminds God, God, remember, you're a God of love and mercy. Remember, you're a God of hesed, of loving kindness. God, remember the promise you made to your descendants that you were going to carry on this line, that you would fulfill your end of the covenant agreement. And he reminds God of what he said and who he is, and God changes his mind. Now, I don't think anyone is really making the case that God genuinely forgot his promise. It was like, oh my goodness, you're right. I totally forgot I'm supposed to love people. Or, oh my goodness, I totally forgot I made that covenant to Abraham. I don't think anyone is really making that argument. But I think there was immense value in God allowing Moses to convince him because it allowed Moses 
to experience firsthand. Moses and then all of us future readers that, that know this story, it allows us to experience firsthand how merciful, how loving God could be towards his people, even in the face of blatant sin and distrust. As they are building a golden idol in the, at the foot of Mount Sinai with all these amazing things, after a God just pulled them out of Egypt and split an ocean in the face of this blatant distrust and sin and disrespect and rebellion, and despite how frustrated God may have been, he's still willing to forgive and love his people. And in a sense, I feel like it expanded Moses' understanding of who God really was and what God was capable of doing. This is a God that in his frustration, in his anger towards these people, in the face of blatant disrespect, is willing to forgive and continue to walk with and to be loyal and faithful to his people because that's who he is. And in the same way, I can't help but wonder if that's what God wanted Abraham to do. If God wanted Abraham to boldly push the limits and boundaries of just how far is God willing to be compassionate and merciful towards his people so that, Moses, so that Abraham himself could discover, just as Moses would, the vastness of God's character and his mercy. But he doesn't. He stops in what I think, what he thinks God is capable of doing. And he stops at the very edge of the box that he created for God. And I feel like in, Abraham, in Abraham's story, there's, he has this image of who God is Right? God is powerful. God is amazing. Yes, but he can't give us a biological child at the age of 90. God is amazing. God is powerful. God is loving and just. But, I mean, he's got to destroy that city. Right? He can't just let them go scot-free. And again, I'm not saying he would have. And again, we won't ever really know. But for me, the story of Moses and God is enough of a precedence for me to feel like maybe that is what God wanted Abraham to do. Push and discover just how loving and just how vast my character and my patience can be for my people as Moses would do in the book of Exodus. And in a sense, Abraham limited and had a limited and narrow expectation of what God would do and therefore could do, and it prevented him from experiencing the full capacity of God's character and power. And for me, I can't help but wonder if this is where many Christians find ourselves today, where we're kind of like Abraham. We don't deny the existence of God. We don't deny that God is powerful and can do amazing things, and we encourage our children to believe in the same. Um, but when it comes to God's involvement in our lives, when it comes to God's power, when it comes to what God could or would do in your life, we're prone to reformatting how it applies to us today. Yes, God did amazing things in the Bible. He was awesome, and there are all these powerful miracles, and we want you know, you should know them and you should learn about them. But I don't know if he really does that stuff today. And I think there's this disconnect at times between what we claim to believe and then how we live our lives. Similar to Sarah. I don't not believe in God, but I do, I would feel better if we had Ishmael. Because, I don't know, is God going to come through? We claim to believe in an all-powerful God that loves us and cares for us on a personal, on a deeply personal level, but it's almost like we plan for his absence. We have safeguards and measures set in place to protect ourselves. We have our own plans and our own ideas of how we want to live our lives. And sure, we may still pray and ask, but for a lot of us, maybe it's nothing more than just 
of formality. Because like Sarah and like Abraham, we have our own agendas and our own vision. And frankly, our own ideas, our own agendas, they seem much more believable. They seem much more realistic. They seem much more probable. And it's safer. And in a sense, we sort of like water down God to make him more palatable, to make him more believable. And this safe version of God, I feel like for a lot of us, lives within the expectations that we set for him. In other words, God never does anything you wouldn't expect him to do. He doesn't intercede in any way that we don't think he would. And in a cruder sense, we create this kind of image of God that comfortably walks beside us in our own lives, but never really does the unexpected. It's interesting that as, I wasn't really thinking about this as I was coming up with this message, but I feel like Pastor Chris has shared this sentiment a few times um, this past year through series where um, we've had a few messages by Pastor Chris where he talks about having this idea of having a bigger faith, of being more bold. And he shared that idea uh, back a few months, maybe a month or two ago about the fellowship hall. And he, he felt like, I wish I had more faith and we had a bigger fellowship hall because we had planned for growth. And maybe that stemmed from a lack of faith in some way, shape, or form. And I really do get the sense between what Pastor Chris has been saying in some of those messages and really what ultimately ended up being the point of this story, that, that perhaps there is something God wants to tell us about the way we have been treating him. And I think for a lot of us, we've been comfortable putting God in a box. Say, God, this is what God can do. Yeah, yes, God can do anything. I believe that. But for me, for my context, for my life, God lives inside of here. Right, he can give me a kid if I'm younger than, I guess, 86. And he, you know, he can forgive up to 10 people in Sodom, but like nothing really outside of that. And to be honest, it's a very comfortable way to live your life. God never surprises you. God never asks you to do something that you wouldn't ask him to do. And in a way, it kind of brings God down to us, right? It's a very comfortable place to be. And for a lot of us, trusting in something that the idea of setting expectations or high expectations for someone that might not be met is very uncomfortable and a very vulnerable place for us to be. And for a lot of us, a lot of our life is built around how can I secure the most amount of comfort for myself and my family and my loved ones? How can I stay, you know, familiar and comfortable with my life? Because nobody likes being uncomfortable. But for me, as I was thinking about, okay, well, what is the best way to break out of this mindset of God? How do we break God out of the mold that we, some of us have placed, us, placed him in because of past experiences, our own expectations? And for me personally, I feel like the best way, when you read the story of the Bible, the moments in Scripture where you see God come through, where you see the power of God, where you see God truly use someone is when God pushes someone outside of their comfort zone and they follow him there. Whether it's Abraham leaving his home country to a foreign land and doing all, and again, he's not a perfect person. Whether it's Joshua leading the Israelites, walking around the walls of Jericho with no military tactical plan. Whether it's Jesus calling Peter out of the water. Whether it's Esther being told to go into the presence of the king without any guarantee of her own safety. Whether it's Noah building a huge boat nowhere near a large body of water. Every time God calls his people outside of their comfort zone, you get to experience and see the power of God in their lives. And you get to see people being used by God for a bigger purpose. And I've shared stories plenty of my life. Me being here today is, is honestly just living proof of that. Where any time I've stepped out outside of my comfort zone for the sake of 
serving God for the sake of, I think this is what God wants me to do, 10 times out of 10, even if things did not go exactly the way I wanted them to go, I have always been able to experience the power of God and see God in a way that I've never experienced him before. And I think for a lot of us, the call is we got to get out of our comfort zone and do something that makes us feel a little bit vulnerable, that makes us feel unfamiliar, that makes us feel a little bit on edge. And ah, can I really? I don't know. But when we do those things in the name of Jesus, or in the name of service, or in the name of community, in the name of God's will, I feel like the story and the patterns in Scripture are pretty clear that those are the moments you get to experience the power of God. That's, those are the moments when God gets to break whatever expectations you've set for him because you've made yourself uncomfortable. The other thing we can do, I feel like, is in our prayers, I feel like for a lot of us, maybe you've related to what I said earlier, where, I don't know, I feel like I've, I've played my prayer game pretty safe over the past few years, um, especially when I was growing up, maybe because of that incident I had with my mom, but largely because, I don't know, I was scared of the disappointment that might come had God not answered my prayers. And maybe for some of us here in this room, we're going through something um, and, and we are kind of banking on God to come through. But you're a little wary. You're a little unsure. Should I trust God with all of this? Can God handle everything that I'm asking to do? And you're praying for God and asking for guidance, but at the same time, you're busy coming up with your own contingency plans and ways that you can maybe protect yourself. And I want to share the chorus of a song. We've never sung this at church before, but it's a song called Bigger Than I Thought. And the chorus of this song has been kind of a, a staple in my prayer life over the past few years since I've heard it. Um, and again, the, the song is called Bigger Than I Thought. So I throw all my cares before you. My doubts and fears don't scare you. You're bigger than I thought you were. You're bigger than I thought. I stop all negotiations with the God of all creation. You're bigger than I thought you were. You're bigger than I thought. And this has been a, a chorus um, that I've been singing and, and adding to my prayer life. Anytime when I feel like I need to be a little bit more bold in my prayers with God. I need to be able to reach out of my comfort zone and really see how God truly operates. And for me, in a word, this has been a very big, important prayer of surrender where I truly say, God, I do believe that you can take care of this for me. I do believe you have a plan for me. So help me to stop negotiating with you and watering you down to make you more believable for my sake. Just do what you can do because you are bigger than I may think that you are. I want to end by um, reading this last passage. And this is um, actually how Paul kind of ends the, the letter to the Ephesians. And again, as he ends this letter, he reminds the people that he's writing to who it is that they serve. And as he's in the final greetings, the part that a lot of us will skip through as we read through the epistles, Paul says this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and he ends with, and in Christ Jesus, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I pray this prayer on behalf of our church and as anyone that may be listening, Father, as Lord, perhaps this is the message you want to tell, maybe not just a few individuals, but our church at large, Rock Fellowship, and anyone else that's watching us online, Lord, that We've been putting you in this box for far too long because, to be honest, it's more comfortable for us. 
Lord, maybe for some of us, we've had one or two experiences where we just felt like you didn't quite meet the expectations we set. And so to save ourselves, to protect ourselves, um, we've lowered the expectation and watered down what you could or would do in our lives. Because honestly, God, it's, it's safer that way. And, and we feel less vulnerable when we do those things. But Father, I ask that as we leave from this place and as we continue on the Sabbath, Lord, that you remind us of who we are to you, Lord that we are your beloved children and that you care and love each one of us on a personal level. And you're our savior, our friend, and our father, and our shepherd, Lord. And that you've called us to boldly approach you in all matters, Lord. And that time and time again, the stories of scripture remind us that you're a God that breaks expectations, that goes further beyond what any of us could have ever imagined and will continue to do so to this day, Lord. Help us to be bolder, in our faith in you, to be stronger and and understand just how deep, how far and how wide your love for us is and will continue to be. Lord, this is our prayer. Can we continue to hold on and cling to you even as we leave this place, Father? let Let us not forget these words and concepts and break you out of that box that we placed you in so that we can serve you for who you truly are. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.